Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 1 John, starting at chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Tim, thank you very much. And let me add my welcome to Peter's. It's great to have you with us this morning. And if you can keep your Bibles open at that reading, that would be a great help. I think uh, we're on page 1226 of the Pew Bibles, uh, 1 John 2 and 3. And let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Father, we do thank you for these words of remarkable comfort and certainty, uh, words full of hope. And so we would pray that this morning you'd help us to be those who do indeed have that kind of confidence and hope in Christ. Amen. Amen. Many years ago, I went to visit my older brother when he was studying at university. I was still at school and much younger, and I remember meeting his, all his uni friends and being in awe of, of his friends. Um, there, was, there was one chap who, who played rugby, and he was, he was massive he even had one of those bars across his bedroom door to do um, chin-ups. And I, I kind of imagined him doing them for hours on end. And I, I tried to do one. I couldn't even do one. Uh, very embarrassing. Um, another one of his friends, uh, he was the president of the Christian Union. And he seemed so wise and godly. I met another friend, and he was just, he was just very funny and made people laugh all the time. And I remember looking at these friends of my brother's, I remember thinking a couple of things. The first one was the rather uncomfortable thought that actually my brother might be quite popular, which is quite a new thing to me. Um, but then I realized as I looked at these, these guys who I thought were just so impressive, I just felt utterly inadequate 
The, the gulf seemed to be massive between these guys and where I was at. And it's not a nice sensation to spot that kind of gap between ourselves and other people. With my brother's friends at uni, it didn't really matter. I went home again, didn't see them again. Uh, I was only 12, so I had plenty of time to recover. But it can be devastating in other ways of life. Particularly, I think, when it comes to being a Christian. In my life, there have been a number of moments when I have, well, probably more than a number, but I'm aware of two this morning, when I've compared myself with, with other people who, who seem to be Christians, and I, I felt utterly inadequate as I looked at them. Uh, on one occasion, I, I was speaking to someone who was talking about his experience of, of, of living with God day in, day out, and he was talking about this, this closeness of a relationship, and it sounded so wonderful, they were so tight between God and this guy and I just thought my experience day in day out just isn't like that I felt utterly inadequate another uh, time I remember speaking to a few people uh, talking about some, some sin and they were saying that actually they've been able to kind of move on from, from those sins they kind of cracked it and those sins weren't things they found troubling anymore and I remember thinking and I didn't say this but I was thinking it wow I haven't got that far yet. I'm still way back there at, at first base. I still struggle with that big time. And there again, I felt utterly inadequate as a Christian. These guys seemed to be streets ahead of me. And I felt at times in despair. And I reckon I'm not alone. I was speaking to someone recently who said to me, Pete, I feel like such a rubbish Christian. In a room this size, I I reckon there'll be all kinds of ways in which we have compared ourselves to other people and we have felt massively lacking as Christians. Perhaps it's to do with with theology. People seem to know so much about the Bible and here's little me, I know so little. Um, Perhaps it's to do with our daily experience of of knowing God. People seem to be on this amazing kind of level of of just being so close to God and then over here, I I just go up and down in my relationship with God. Uh, Maybe it's the sin issue. Other Christians around us seem so godly and, and we know we're not. Uh, maybe it's talk about the Holy Spirit and what it means to have the Holy Spirit in us, living in, inside us. And we feel like we just don't compare to other people. I think this atmosphere of looking at other people and feeling utterly inadequate is the atmosphere into which John writes these words from 1 John. He is writing to genuine Christians but to people who feel like second-rate Christians. In fact, I think they're even questioning whether they are actually Christians, such is the severity of their wobble looking at these other people. And we met these other people, I think, uh, two weeks ago, looking at uh, the first part of 1 John 2. Uh, they, they are people who departed from the Christians, who had gone out from them, but who were still in some sense around. And they were very impressive persuasive people and they're making remarkable claims claims about how well they knew God the quality of their fellowship with God the fact that they had beaten sin that they are now pure beyond sin they're making uh, claims about having defeated evil and about the Holy Spirit I think in their lives and compared to these uh, false teachers the genuine readers of genuine Christians who read 1 John, well, they felt very much like second-rate Christians. In response to that climate of, of worry, John's headline for us this morning is there in verse 28. He says, Now, dear children, continue in him 
so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Words of remarkable assurance. He says to his readers, you are children of God. You are in Christ. You've accepted the teaching about Christ. You are the real deal. And if you stay trusting in Christ, then when Christ returns, you can be completely confident that he will accept you and that you will be okay on that day of judgment. In the rest of our reading, I think John goes on to explain to these genuine Christians why they can be confident, even if their present circumstances makes them wobble in their Christian experience. So why can we be confident? Two points. First of all, I think John would say to us, you are children of God now, but the best is yet to come. This is looking at uh, verse 29 through to verse 4. Look at verse 1. John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I think many Christians can just about get their heads around the the idea that, that God has found a way to forgive us. Um, you might know the, uh, the famous illustration of a, of a thief who's caught red-handed robbing. And uh, the thief comes to court, appears before the judge, and, and he is guilty. He's, he's done it. And the judge is about to declare the guilty sentence in the court. But before he does that, the judge steps down and walks around the dock, takes out his checkbook and writes a check that covers the full cost of the amount that was being uh, stolen. Then he gets back up into the into his chair and he reads out the verdict not guilty you're free to go and it's a wonderful picture of how God has found a way to forgive us his children by paying the penalty the cost of our sin through the death of his son Jesus on the cross dying in our place and because of that payment the verdict of not guilty is declared over us we are forgiven it's wonderful but I think many Christians stop there they kind of run the, the story forward and they imagine that after the trial's over, the judge jumps in his Range Rover and drives off into the country to his big estate and has a lovely life over there. And the, the criminal, the thief, um, is free to go, yes, but they're back out in the streets and that's the end of it all. But the picture that John paints for us here in 1 John is so very different because the story doesn't end that way for John. John says, we are called children of God and that is what we are. Children, not just forgiven, but children. And so if you like, the story actually ends this way. The trial is over. The judge is about to leave and he walks around to the criminal and he says, do you know what? Would you come home with me? Would you come back to my estate and enjoy life with me? Would would you be part of the family, one of my children? Would you? And of course, the thief says, yes, I would love to. That's the sense here, isn't it? The wonder of verse one is that we rock up dressed in our filthy rags of of sin and rebellion before God the judge, and God doesn't just forgive us, but he adopts us into his family. We are his children. And so John says, verse one, that is what we are. 
But there is a complication here, and this takes us to the heart of what, why John writes, because verse one continues. The reason the world does not know us is that it did, did not know him. I think John is talking about, when he talks about the world, he means the false teachers who are coming from a worldly perspective. And as they look at these genuine children of God, they go, oh, come on. They can't be children of God. And John says, the reason why they don't recognize you is because they don't know Jesus. That's the first thing he says. But he also says later on, there's more to it. Uh, recently, the, um, in our headlines, we saw, I think last week, we saw pictures of Princess Charlotte. Um, pictures were released officially for us. And if you saw the pictures, she was looking suitably princess-like with all the right poses and uh, the right uh, hairstyle, and the right uh, clothes, the right backdrop. And as you look at the pictures of Princess Charlotte, it's not hard to see that she is the daughter of Will and Kate, that she is, in fact, a princess. And so it's easy to see that she belongs in that kind of setting. But I think the other reason why the world and the false teachers don't recognize the children of God is because they just don't look very impressive. It's not just that they don't know Jesus, but they look at the children and go, come on, they, they can't be children of the king of kings. They're just, they're just these people here. I think that's the sense that, what, that John is grappling with. And so John responds, verse two. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. You see how John speaks into their, their kind of problem? He says, yeah, okay. First thing is, you definitely are children of God. That's, that's not up for grabs. But what we will be in the future hasn't yet been revealed. The best is yet to come. And he goes on to explain what he means. And so later on in verse two, he says, but we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John says, yeah, okay, so, so you are children now, but, but, but you're, not very, you're not very impressive. Um, what you will be has not yet been revealed, but there's a day coming when Christ returns. You will see him face to face, and there will be this most remarkable transformation. It's worth remembering, isn't it? Uh, we remembered Ascension Day on Thursday, Christ taken up to heaven, but one day he will return. And there will be that moment of transformation. I never met my grandmother. Uh, she died before I was born. But I have been told that as she lay in bed dying, her body riddled with cancer. As her life ebbed away, she asked again and again if she could have played to her that great work by Handel, the Messiah. You probably know how it goes. The trumpet will sound, the dead shall be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Words from 1 Corinthians 15, but very much at home here in 1 John 3 as well. We will see him, and when we do, we will be changed. It's true for a body riddled with cancer, 
but it's true also for a heart riddled with sin. There is a day coming when there'll be this most remarkable transformation. And what we will be then will be most glorious. Sitting here this morning, I don't know what this sin is for you, but I'm pretty confident that each of us, there'll be a sin or a number of sins that we know just keep getting us again and again. They are our besetting sins. And we find again and again in the battle that we just can't rid ourselves of these things. I don't know what it is. For some, it might be an addiction to pornography. It might be an addiction to alcohol or to gambling. For others, it might be lovelessness. For others, it might be bitterness or envy or prayerlessness. Or it might be all of them. But do you see what John is saying? Christian, no matter how unimpressive you might feel or look now, There's a day of transformation coming in the future when you will be like Christ. There will be an end to the battle. There'll be an end to our old way of living. So I think John would say to us, we are children of God now, but the best is yet to come. On one hand, I think we need to be careful, therefore, not to oversell what it means to be a Christian now. I think there can just be a a danger in in some of the books that we read and even some of the sermons we hear that as people talk about the joy, and it is a joy of being a Christian now, that we somehow give the impression that if we become a Christian, then suddenly our lives will all fall into place and everything will be sorted and we'll get everything kind of cracked in our lives. Do you know how it goes? So, you know, do you struggle with anxiety or, or depression Um, Do you struggle to be a good parent or a good grandparent? Do you have problems at home in your marriage? Well, become a Christian and everything will fall into place. It'll all be fixed. That, That can be almost the impression we get from some of the books we might read. But I think John would say here, be be careful. Yes, we are children of God now in the present, but what we will be has not yet been revealed. We haven't yet seen Christ face to face. We're not perfect We still live in a broken world. And so yes, in a sense, we're not impressive. But we are children of God. On the other hand, though, I think we also see here a tremendous spur towards godliness. You see, John isn't saying, oh, okay, well, so we're not the finished article yet, so we just sit back and wait until Christ comes back. No, not at all. Verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I guess, imagine a friend comes and tells you that they've decided to leave Sheffield, which would be a shocking thing to do, but it does happen. And they announce that they're going to move to France. And they're going to sell the house and ship all the stuff across to France. And uh, they're absolutely thrilled to be going to France and entering the new culture and engaging with this new uh, people. Uh, And so you watch them over the next few weeks as they prepare to move. What would you expect to see happening? Well, yes, they'll be packing and sorting things out. But I reckon you'd expect them to also start to learn French. 
If they really want to live in this new culture and engage with French people, if that's their hope in the future, then you would expect now in the present to see some French learning going on, wouldn't you? It's just logical. And I think that's the sense here in 1 John 3, verse 3. If we have this hope, and it is absolutely certain that when Christ returns, we will be perfect and pure like him, then in the present now, we should start to try to be like that. Oh, the accent won't be perfect. We won't be fluent. There'll be mistakes along the way. But do you see how the hope in the future transforms our efforts now in the present? And this kind of motivation for godliness is so different from the kind of fear that so often motivates us. You see, we we look at other people and go, wow, they're so impressive, they're so godly, I wish I could be like them, and I must try harder to fit in and be like them. And so fear drives us towards godliness. But John says, no, here it is hope that we will be like Christ in the future. You are children of God now, but the best is yet to come. That's our first reason why we can be confident Christians now. But second, and this is our our final point, John would say to us, I think, you are children of God now, but learn to spot those who aren't. Learn to spot those who aren't. And this is verses four to 10. Now these, these verses are tricky, and you'll see how tricky they are as we start to look at them in more detail. John John has just been speaking about the wonderful confidence we have. We are children of God, and we will see him and be confident when we see him. Uh, We're not the finished article, but then he says, verse 6, he says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has ever seen him or or known him. Or or then, verse 7, he says, The one who does what is right is righteous. Verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. Verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin. It, it does feel like quite a gear change from the confidence we've just been looking at. Now John seems to be saying, oh, be very careful. If you sin, if you make a mistake, then you're out. You're not children of God. Having just said, oh, don't worry, you're not the finished article yet. Well, think back to chapter 1 a few weeks ago now, verse 8, verse 10, John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. And yet here now he says, no one born of God continues to sin. So how do we understand these verses in the context of what John is saying in his letter? Well, I think there are two main solutions that you'll come across. I think both could be possible. The first one I call the, the Myers-Briggs solution. Uh, you, you might have come across Myers-Briggs. It's a personality profile test. So um, you get given a questionnaire with lots of questions. You go away with a cup of tea and you go through the questions. You, you give your answers. You submit your answers. and Then you get back on a bit of paper who you are, your personality, and that's, that's you. And, and the questions, the way they work is that they ask you to kind of rate yourself um, between extremes. So it might be, you know, uh, which is most true for you? I really like going to parties. Is that very true, quite true, not very true, or completely wrong? You know, you kind of, there's a range of answers. You're asked to kind of put yourself in a general ballpark, you know, roughly where you stand on these things. And you have loads of these questions. And you discover how you fit in, what your personality is like. And so many people come to 1 John 3 and say, this is a Christian version of the Myers-Briggs approach to life. 
you know, we have a number of questions here about who we are. Um, so verse four, there's the law-keeping question. Um, verse six, there's the sinning question. Verse 10, uh, there's the doing what is right question. And if, as we go through, we ask ourselves, oh, well, how are we doing? What, how do we fit in? Are we, you know, how well, are, are we very sinful, quite sinful, not very sinful, or not sinful at all? You know, that, that, those are the kind of responses. And we submit our answers and we get back our answer. You're either a child of God or very starkly, you're a child of the devil, says John. And read the Myers-Briggs way, the, the challenge then becomes to us to make very sure that we are not Christians who dabble in sin or to make a habit of sinning. And so they make much of verse six where we read, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. So they say that we must be people who either don't sin or only occasionally sin. But if we are making a habit of sin in our lives, then the Myers-Briggs feedback is not good. This could be the way to read it. There is quite a lot going for it in many ways. But it just doesn't sit right with me. For a start, I look at my own life and my sin is not very occasional. And then I think pastorally, it seems like a pretty scary exam to sit. Remember, John is trying to reassure his readers that they are Christians. You've got it, keep going. But this feels like, well, it's a pretty stern test, isn't it? Do you know, um, how many times can I look at porn on the internet before I'm not a child of God? How many times can I lose my temper? Three times, four times, five times in a month? John doesn't say. Where does assurance fit in to this view? Well, I think there is another option. We've had the Myers-Briggs approach where Christians examine themselves. The other option I call the spotlight approach to 1 John 3. In other words, these words are not so much for Christians to to use to examine themselves, but actually they're like a massive spotlight that they use to look at other people and the world around them. And it's here to help them spot who is not a child of God. I think, in fact, this whole section is really about the false teachers. I said that because of verse 7. John says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. See, I think he's trying to deal with, with the false teaching in and around the genuine Christians, and he's trying to help them diagnose and to spot the falseness of it. So he says, don't be led astray. And so I think what we have here is this, a, a massive spotlight from John to four Christians to shine around their world, to spot who is a child of God and who is not, that they may not be thrown by people who look so impressive. And read this way, the crucial question then becomes, what does John mean by lawlessness and sin and doing what is right and wrong? And as is so often the case, we get the answer by reading on further in John's writings. He wants us to keep on searching. And we find, I think, the answer later on in chapter 3. So glance with me at verse 23 of of 1 John 3. Just across the page. John writes, and this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. 
Those who obey his commands live in him and he in us. And this is how we know that, we, that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. It's very similar language to what we've been looking at so far in 1 John 3. Who lives in God, who has the spirit that is the seed, who is the child of God. Well, John says it is not the morally perfect person or the one who gives to charity or, or never loses their temper. No, he says it's the one who keeps the command to believe in Jesus. And then once we've got that right, we those who then go and love other Christians. That seems to be the sense here. And so throughout chapter three, I think the, the big sin that John is trying to um, reveal and expose is the sin of rejecting the son. Now, of course, I think other sins will flow out of this big sin. If we don't love God and his son, Jesus, we won't love other people as we should. But I think John is trying to show us the heart of the problem, which is that once and for all big sin of rejecting Jesus. And so in verse eight, he who does what is sinful, that is, he who does not believe in Jesus, he is of the devil. Verse nine, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. I think John's talking about the Holy Spirit and one John, the great work of the Spirit is to testify to us about Jesus. No one who has that Spirit living in them will reject Jesus, John says. Well, how does this um, to the spotlight work in practice? Um, how would it work in John's day? Well, I suspect John is probably writing about um, Jews, People who were morally very impressive, who were very devout and religious. But John shines a spotlight onto their hearts and says, do they get the really big issue of who is Jesus and why did he come? Uh, in John's gospel, you might want to write down in your notes, but uh, trace it later. Uh, we see this happening. John 6, the Jews ask Jesus, verse 28, what must we do to do the works that God requires? The answer we get in verse 29 from Jesus, the work that God requires is not moral perfection. No, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And as we go through John 6, we see that the Jews, many of them can't do that work. They can't believe in Jesus. They won't, they don't. And so by John 8, Jesus calls these Jews children of the devil not because of their moral behavior but because of their unbelief in Jesus and so back in 1 John 3 here is a spotlight for us to use to spot false children two examples to help us as we finish when I was um, going through my selection process for ordination I had uh, various meetings and interviews with lots of different people I have to say most of them were remarkably helpful as I sought to discern whether it was the right step for me to take. Very, very useful indeed. But I do remember one particular interview with one particular individual, and it was so awkward. They asked me to explain very quickly what I thought the good news of Christianity was. And so I, I talked about our great problem, the problem of sin, and how God had found a solution to that problem by sending his son to die on a cross in our place, and that as he died, his blood being shed, he took the judgment we deserve unto himself, God's judgment poured unto him. 
so that once the judgment had fallen on him, it would not fall on us. We are forgiven as we trust in Christ. That, I said, is the good news of Christianity. And as I talked, this person shook their head and said at the end, he said, so Pete, um, I, I like that you're very sincere about what you believe, but you need to understand that you've misunderstood the cross. That the cross is not about sin, it's not about judgment. The cross is a moral example of love to spur us on to love other people. And they said to me, Pete, you won't see it now, but I hope one day you'll grow up to understand that that is what the cross is about. Very tricky moment. Here I was, a a younger guy with an older person claiming to be a Christian leader doing that to me. How do I respond? Well, I was was, um, polite. I, um, I, I didn't agree. But 1 John 3 helps me, doesn't it? It helps me shine a spotlight onto the conversation. And it says, not so much was that person a nice person or a moral person or someone I could get on with, but it's the what do they make of Jesus question that matters. And they seem to get that wrong. Verse 5, he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And if that's not your view of the cross, then you've misunderstood Jesus. You aren't doing the work that God requires. And so here as a church family, we need to be very aware that there are people around who look lovely, who are very upright. But here John's not saying look at their loveliness, but rather look at their view of Jesus. That's the crucial issue here for all of us. And in the future, I hope it doesn't happen, um, but if Paul, myself, Ben, Peter, others in church leadership, if we all went under a, a big bus tomorrow and you were left with the task of appointing new leaders for the church here, what kind of people would you look for? Please look for people who get Jesus right, who understand that his death on the cross, his blood shed for us, it is how we escaped God's judgment. That is the 1 John 3 spotlight for us, I think. One other example as we finish. is a student who I used to meet up with when I was in Oxford. He was a lovely Christian guy. He loved the Lord. He believed the message of 1 John that the apostles had written for us. But he was racked with a lack of assurance. And week after week he would come and we'd pour over it together and he'd talk about his ongoing sin and how he, he just felt as if his sin meant that he was just too far away from God. And he, and he was worried that one day God would have enough and would push him away and that would be it. And so week by week we kept asking the same questions. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He died to shed his blood in my place. What did the cross achieve? It achieved forgiveness for me as judgment fell on Jesus. Who am I now? I'm a child of God. Adopted and loved. And week by week, as we went through these again and again, you could just see over a year or so, I guess, the assurance building in this lovely Christian guy. Not because of his moral behavior, he was a sinner, but rather because he was looking to Christ and he got the 1 John 3 question right about Jesus. You are children of God now but learn to spot those who aren't. Let's pray.
So Father, we thank you for these words of remarkable comfort. We thank you that in the brokenness and messiness of our own lives and living in this world now, we thank you that there will be a moment of remarkable, wonderful, complete transformation. And as we cling on to that hope now, please would it transform us. Please give us confidence. No matter who we see or how we compare ourselves to others, please help us to know what will happen when Christ returns. Amen.